0: Hi, everyone. Tommy here. To let you know that the St. Dimpna's Playbook book is now available from Ave Maria Press. You can order wherever books and ebooks are sold. We'll put a link to the book on Ave's website in the show notes so you can go and check it out and use the code BEWELL, all one word, to get 25% off. Thanks so much. Francis once said, to speak of hope to those who are desperate, it is essential to share their desperation, to dry the tears from the faces of those who are suffering. It is necessary to join our tears with theirs. Welcome to the 107th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. I love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want to encourage all of us to realize that comforting those who are suffering means being willing to suffer with them and help them realize that they'll never be alone. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dimphna's Mentions. (laughs) You know I'm always up for sharing a story about a celebrity doing something good for mental health, and today that celebrity is Selena Gomez. We go to the Mercury News to get us started. Talking about mental health is good for you, according to pop star, actor, and producer Selena Gomez, and she's determined to be the catalyst for positive change. The singer announced the launch of her latest venture, WonderMind, a mental health platform focused on connecting people with educational resources and ending the stigma around mental illnesses. Gomez hasn't been shy when it comes to discussing her mental health publicly. previously wrote for CNN about how she's a big advocate for social media detoxes and therapy, and she announced on Miley Cyrus' Instagram show, Bright Minded, in April that she has bipolar disorder. Quote, I went to one of the best mental hospitals in America, McLean Hospital, and I discussed that after years of going through a lot of different things, I realized I was bipolar, Gomez said. And so, when I got to know more information, it actually helps me. It doesn't scare me once I know it. Her mother revealed being misdiagnosed for over 20 years with bipolar disorder that later turned out to be ADHD with trauma, according to the Wondermind website's welcome video. They both said they struggled to find safe spaces online where they could engage with uplifting content about mental health on a daily basis enter Wondermind the platform strategy centers around mental fitness providing daily exercises people can do to strengthen their mental health they'll be launching a physical product as well as a part of the plan beginning with physical journals that will feature creative prompts the site also hinted at the launch of a podcast that would be a platform for others to share their mental health challenges quote I'm so excited about Wondermind because I want there to be a place of people coming together and understanding they're not alone end quote Gomez said back to me i i just want to applaud selena gomez and point out how crucial ventures like this are for mental health and wellness in our culture especially among young people who will hopefully be able to see someone like selena gomez talking about their mental health experiences and then feel more open to opening up about it in their own lives asking for help no longer feeling stigmatized and moving forward toward wellness it's a beautiful thing to see conversations around mental health being made uh, public and being held in public life like this and i really hope it bears good fruit for any Who may encounter it. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm going to introduce you to Blessed Eustatium of Padua. Born in 1433 in Padua, Italy. She was the daughter of a nun who had broken her vows. She was born in the convent and the plan was for her and her mother to live out their days in peace there. However, the local bishop found out and moved Eustatium's mother out, leaving the young girl to live with the nuns, but without her mother. She wanted to join the convent, but the sisters rejected her because of the way she was brought into this world. The bishop, however, was on her side this time and she entered at the age of 20 taking the name of one of St. Jerome's disciples. We go to faith in nd.edu for more. During her short time as a sister, Eustatium experienced grave mental distress, and the sisters were afraid of her wild outbursts of temper, mixed with her periods of melancholy. Eustatium cut herself with knives, which frightened the sisters, and they believed that she was possessed by a demon. They punished her in a manner which only hurt her more, and the bishop imprisoned her in a dungeon for three months." The townspeople wanted to burn her as a witch. Eustatium, however, clung to her desire to be a sister. She did not abandon her vocation. After four grueling years, she received her final vows, but the intense mental and physical distress weakened her health a great deal, and she died on February 13, 1459, and the name of Jesus was found scorched on her breast. Three years after her burial, her body was discovered to be incorrupt, and the Bishop of Padua ordered a biography written and her body moved to a place of greater honor. Blessed Eustatium has been honored in Padua ever since. And we'll add a little more from Meg Hunter Kilmer's Instagram post on this powerful and important Blessed Sister Eustatium was likely experiencing a combination of possession and mental illness. She was inclined to self-harm, cutting herself with knives or needles, though sometimes she was able to resist this compulsion. But she. Also also spent hours in prayer each day. She wasn't always able to control her actions, struggling against compulsive behavior, but her heart remained fixed on Jesus. Neither possession nor severe mental illness could thwart her growth in holiness, and after she died at 24, many miracles were wrought through her intercession. Back to me you know it's a beautiful thing to come across this amazing saint a woman who is standing before the throne of god this very moment ready to take our needs to him to pray for all of us who may be suffering from mental illness and all of us who want to stay close to god even though our emotional well-being makes it difficult from time to time we like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer loving god you are always near to us especially when we are weak suffering and vulnerable reach out to those who experience mental illness lift their burdens calm their anxiety and quiet their fears surround them with your healing presence that they may know that they are not alone we ask this in the name of your son jesus and the holy spirit now and forever amen and now you can't do therapy over twitter but i'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness it's time for twitter therapy (music) Sam gets us started. I'm a campus minister of a large Newman Center. I tend to hear about students' struggles with mental health. While I refer them to seek out professional help, I'm wondering how you deal with still knowing that someone is hurting and not being able to directly help them. Well, let's start by joining in prayer together for Sam and everyone Sam comes into contact with the Newman Center, that Christ may bring peace and comfort into all of their hearts this very day. Our Father, who art in heaven, First off, I just want to say how incredible the work you're doing is, not just in terms of working with those in college on their faith journey, but also that you care enough about them to work on recognizing mental health experiences they may be going through, and then thinking about the best way to help them, truly a great witness. Referring people to get the help that they need is a great first step, and yes, it can be difficult to know they are hurting, but feel like there isn't much you can do to help them in the meantime. It's important to remember that if you've helped connect someone to mental health resources, you don't need to feel burdened and about also filling that role for them you aren't meant to be their doctor or their therapist or their social worker you are meant for a different role and you should feel comfortable staying within the bounds of that role and letting the other helping professionals fill their role without remembering that we can end up trying to do all the things for all people and that simply leads to burnout which isn't good for us or the people that we're trying to assist Of course, that doesn't mean there's nothing that we can do to help within the boundaries of our role, right? We'll get a little help from Healthline to see how we can help without becoming someone's therapist. Start a conversation. Let them know that you're there for them. You can start a conversation by sharing your concerns and asking specific questions. For example, you might say, It seems like you've been having a hard time lately. What's on your mind? The last few times we hung out, you seemed a little down. Is there anything going on that you'd like to talk about? Or... You mentioned going through some hard times recently. How are you feeling about everything? Keep in mind that they may want to talk about what they feel, but they might not actually want advice, right? Engage them by using active listening techniques, like ask questions to get more information instead of assuming that you understand what they mean. Validate their feelings. You might say, that sounds really difficult. I'm sorry to hear that. Show empathy and interest with your body language. All right, next, extend loose invitations. People living with depression may have a hard time reaching out to friends or making or keeping plans, but canceling plans can contribute to guilt. A pattern of cancel plans may lead to fewer invitations, which can increase isolation. These feelings can worsen depression. You can help reassure them by continuing to extend invitations to activities even if you know they're unlikely to accept. Tell them that you understand they might not keep the plans when they're in a rough patch and that there's no pressure to hang out until they're ready just remind them that you're happy to see them whenever they feel like it next is to be patient depression usually improves with treatment but it can be a slow process that involves some trial and error There may have to be a few different counseling approaches tried or medications before they find the one that helps their symptoms. Even successful treatment doesn't always mean depression goes away entirely. They may continue to have symptoms from time to time. So in the meantime, they'll probably have some good days and some bad days. So avoid assuming that a good day means they're cured and try not to get frustrated if a string of bad days makes it seem like they'll never improve. And last, stay in touch. Let them know you still care about them as they continue to work through their depression. Even if you aren't able to spend a lot of time with them on a regular basis, check in regularly with a text, a phone call, or a quick visit. Even sending a quick text saying, I've been thinking about you and I care about you can help. People living with depression may become more withdrawn and avoid reaching out, but continuing to be a positive, supportive presence in their life might make all the difference to them, even if they can't express that to you in the moment. All right, I hope that helps, and God bless you for all the incredible work you're doing. Teresa is up next. My sister has severe MS, life-threatening heart issues. She's never been diagnosed with mental health because she's a severe and chronic alcoholic and refuses any help. She's violent and highly disruptive. She's been thrown out of every living location and is presently in the Rhode Island cold in her car with her dog. She's refusing any help from my sisters and I. What are we to do when our homes are so unsafe with her being there? She's been offered a motel room. Let's join together, you guys, in prayer for Teresa, her family, and of course, her sister, for recovery, for wellness, and for everyone in the family to take care of themselves as they try and take care of each other. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. First of all, I know it's so hard to go through something like this. So I I wanna say that you are an incredible sister and you're trying so hard to help and God understands how difficult it has been and he loves you and he loves your sister and he wants you to make sure that you're taking care of yourself even as you try to help her. I always recommend family members try to locate their local NAMI group, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. There is no better group for helping family members in this precise situation. And thanks to the pandemic, accessing their support is easier than ever. First to your question, what are we to do when our homes are so unsafe with her being there? I want to make sure that you hear it's okay if you can't have her at your home. Your safety and the safety of your immediate family is your priority, and you are not expected to put anyone's safety at risk to help someone else. It sounds like you've done so much to try and get her to access help, and she hasn't been interested in reaching out and receiving that help, and there comes a point where there's little you can do beyond what you've already done. We'll go to NAMI now to get some thoughts. While you may care for someone's well-being and believe you know what's best for them, adults have the right to make decisions about their treatment. There could be many reasons why a person decides not to engage in treatment or rely on some treatment options. However, without treatment, some people aren't able to achieve the life they'd like to have. It may be important to have an honest discussion about their treatment decisions and how they affect your relationship with them. Set clear expectations and discuss the possible outcomes of both accepting or not accepting treatment. When a person has no insight into their condition, it can create a difficult situation where they may not believe that treatment is necessary. Helping a loved one to see the need for treatment and working with them to locate treatment services can be difficult. A book that many families and friends uh, have found helpful is called I Am Not Sick, I Don't Need Help by Xavier Amador, PhD. In the book, Dr. Amador teaches a communication strategy known as LEAP, L-E-A-P. This approach teaches a person how to help someone see the need for treatment, partner with them to identify options and support ongoing recovery. And we'll wrap up here with some tips from the book. Number one, set time aside to be able to talk with your loved one without getting distracted. Two, create a stress-free environment like going on a walk or having coffee together. Three, sometimes the person may not say anything at all or say uh, a lot that doesn't make sense, but keep listening so that he or she knows that you're there for him or her. And this helps build trust. Number four, if your loved one refuses to take medication or see their doctor, say something like, I hate to see what you're going through tell me why you're scared or against taking medicine. Number five, try to understand if your loved one thinks that medication will cause their mind to get weak or develop any short or long-term problems, or perhaps it's embarrassment or stigma around taking medication. Number six, try not to display any strong emotions like anger or frustration. For example, if your loved one is talking about hearing voices or believes that he or she is being possessed by someone, for the moment just listen and reassure them that it must be hard to go through something like this in their mind. Number seven, let your loved one talk as long as she wants and do not interrupt her rambling can help a person release frustration the trick is not to try to guide the conversation number eight repeat what the person says when you have made a point of communicating your understanding of what she has said you ensure that you have understood her correctly and convey empathy when it's your turn to talk repeat what she said in your own words if your loved one feels you understood her thoughts and feelings in a specific matter she will be more open to hearing your opinion later And number nine, make a note, record what you've learned about your loved one's inner life and emotions. And back to me, of course, continue to pray as you have been doing, continue to take care of yourself and your own mental, emotional, and physical health, and know that we're praying for you too. Anonymous wraps us up. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about supporting a partner who has a history of religious OCD. I want our shared Catholic faith to be central to our relationship as a couple, but I'm often afraid that I push too much and it might be triggering for him. Let's pray together for Anonymous, for Anonymous' partner, and everyone experiencing religious OCD for peace, healing, and freedom from the symptoms that make it difficult to rest in the joy of the Lord. Remember, Thank you so much for sending this question in and so much for loving your partner and wanting to find ways to help them feel comfortable in your faith journey together. First, let's check in with the International OCD Foundation to get down to what exactly scrupulosity is. A form of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, involving religious or moral obsessions. Scrupulous individuals are overly concerned that something they thought or did might be a sin or or other violation of religious or moral doctrine. Common obsessions seen in scrupulosity include excessive concerns about blasphemy, having committed a sin, behaving morally, purity, going to hell, death, and a loss of impulse control. Besides excessive worry about religious and moral issues, scrupulosity sufferers engage in mental or behavioral compulsions. Behavioral compulsions could include excessive trips to confession, repeatedly seeking reassurance from religious leaders and loved ones, repeated cleansing and purifying rituals, acts of self sacrifice, avoiding situations, for example, religious services, in which they believe a religious or moral error would be especially likely or cause something bad to happen. And then mental compulsions could include something like excessive praying, sometimes with an emphasis on the prayer needing to be perfect, repeatedly imagining sacred images or phrases, repeating passages from sacred scripture in one's head, and making pacts with God. And of course, we always want to point this out. How can scrupulosity be distinguished from normal religious practice? Unlike normal religious practice, scrupulous behavior usually exceeds or disregards religious law and may focus excessively on one trivial area of religious practice while other, more important areas may be completely ignored. The behavior of scrupulous individuals is typically inconsistent with that of the rest of the faith community. The best thing we can do to support a loved one who's experiencing religious OCD is to help them get connected to someone who knows how to treat OCD. The evidence-based treatment is known as exposure and response prevention. We'll have a look at treatmyocd.com to get an idea of what that might look like. For people with scrupulosity... Exposure and response prevention therapy might include exposure to a trigger that is connected to the patient's urge to seek reassurance. An example might be a person who felt guilty about finding scripture funny on one occasion. One of his compulsions is to repeatedly excessively go to confession to seek reassurance from his priest that he hadn't blasphemed and was not going to hell. An ERP exercise might involve him thinking about a time he had an inappropriate reaction to scripture. His therapist would then help him to avoid his compulsive urge to seek out reassurance through confession. Eventually, his uh, obsessions and compulsive behaviors would improve as he learns to stop relying on compulsions to relieve his anxiety in the short term. So back to me. It's extremely hard work because it involves walking directly into the anxiety-provoking situations and then not doing the things we've learned to do to help cope with the anxiety. But it is an extremely effective way to loosen the grip these intrusive thoughts have on us. As for what we can do for loved ones uh, to help, here are some thoughts from beyondocd.org. In many cases, family members and friends become extremely involved in the rituals of persons who suffer from religious scrupulosity. They may become involved in rituals by taking their loved ones to church and Every day to attend confession, for example, or they may help him or her avoid objects, people, or places that trigger religious obsessions like drive to the store using a route that bypasses a particular church. Family members believe they are helping their loved ones by assisting or accommodating OCD and may not know what else to do to keep peace in the household. Unfortunately, when people accommodate OCD, they actually reinforce the OCD behavior, making it easier for OCD to get stronger and keeps its grip on loved ones. We'll combine this with some thoughts from ACC Counseling. How then should one respond to reassurance requests from an OCD sufferer. First, the person and his significant other are educated about the harmful effects of reassurance. They are given an explanation that providing reassurance interferes with the recovery from the disorder. It does so by blocking exposure to the fear which is necessary for the elimination of fear. Remember, exposure is key to successful treatment. Second, the person is instructed to abstain from asking for reassurance. A reassurance seeker's most frequent questions are identified Identified and he or she are, is told not to ask these questions. And third, it can be expected that some requests for reinsurance will continue despite the person's efforts to abstain from them. Therefore, those providing reassurance need to work out expressions that are acceptable to the, first, to the person for refusing to offer it. One way of doing this is to say, I think you're asking for reassurance. Remember, reassurance is not helpful. It's harmful. It's harmful therefore i'm not going to answer. okay so back to me to wrap it up that last bit can be extremely helpful to think about because when we're living with scrupulosity it's good to be able to label our intrusive thoughts rather than to address them or seek reassurance. For example, saying uh, something in response to our intrusive thoughts like that's my ocd and then moving on rather than addressing it, seeking reassurance, etc. and this is something we can help our loved ones with like responding them to them with something like that sounds like your scrupulosity rather than saying something like, no, 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 that doesn't sound like a sin. I think you're going to be okay. So that's that's a lot, but I hope that it helps you get started. And please know that we'll be continuing to pray for you both. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dimphna.